That's why you're not the host, Chris. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, a podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Gareth Metcalf. It's great to be here again. And this week, we're going to continue our previous conversation about mathematical problem solving. But first, Chris, what are you reading for? What are you reading for? So this week, I've had reason to go back to a really terrific resource, the NASEN, sometimes just called NASEN Handbook. It is a wonderful resource to any teacher who wants to know more about special educational needs and disabilities. It is available free if you sign up. If you go onto the NASEN website, sign up, become a member. It doesn't cost you anything at all. You can download it. It's a really accessible, useful description of a full range of special educational needs and disabilities. Highly recommended for anyone interested in, in particular, in the issues related to uh, reading development and has a really fascinating introduction to developmental language disorder, which is something that I've been reading a little bit more about recently. So, yeah, if you've got an interest in that area, that's um, a really great place to start. What about you, Gareth? What are you reading for? Well, it, it's funny you say that, Chris, because of all the questions I, I've thought about and the things I've considered in preparation for this podcast, this is the question I've actually thought about the most. And normally this is quite a light, kind of a light feature of the show. But actually for me, uh, I've probably spent about 12 years reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, I wanted to say this because I've actually walked through quite a difficult season of life in recent times and I've actually found that to kind of maintain the quality of the work that I do and you know as a dad and my kind of home life I've needed a lot more time to myself to process things spend time with friends and so I've bought Playful Mathematics by Helen Williams it's sat on my shelf for a long time and I'm really looking forward to getting to that but I guess the reason that I wanted to say this is because Karen talked in a previous podcast about seeing a career as being 30 years and the development of, of that as being a long-term thing. And it's just my encouragement to anyone that is kind of walking through a phase of life that you're in this for the long run. And if you're kind of limited in what you've been able to do in a short period of time, don't feel any guilt with that. And just know that you can be proud that you sometimes, you know, you turn up that day and, you know, and you're not alone in, in that as well. And in the long run, I'll get back in and I will dig in and next time I'll come on, I'll tell you all about playful mathematics. But I just wanted to give an encouragement, even if it's just a one listener, if they're walking through that season of life as well, then just to kind of hang on and keep going. So not much is my answer. I mean, I think that's really important. I think especially as this will be going out around about November, December time. And I know that seasonally affected disorder and stuff like that there really make the winter months quite difficult. So yeah, I think that'll be um, really helpful for, you know, so even if it's just one person, then, you know, 
it's, it's definitely worth saying. I have been reading a paper which is interesting in turn, you know, and as much as the word interesting is used to suggest that I don't necessarily agree with everything that is included in it. It's called Creativity and Problem Solving, Integrating Two Different Views of Insight. And it's per Oystein Avolt and Bharath Sriraman. Um, and essentially, it, it's a reasonably comprehensive review of some approaches to problem solving. And so as part of my prep for this, I explored it. Um, and I think it, it's worth a read to anyone who's interested in, in problem solving. So um, it's my pleasure this week to have a chance to take over the reins a little bit from Kieran for the main reason that we are talking about problem solving in mathematics. We're continuing our exploration of this subject and because I know considerably less about it than both uh, Gareth and Kieran, um, I get to be the naive question answerer being enlightened by their expertise. So I think the best place to start is a, a bit of a, a recap in some ways of what we've talked about before by asking, well, what do you mean by problem solving? What do we mean by it? And how does this perhaps contrast with the idea of, of reasoning in mathematics? And I'll throw that question to Kieran first. I mean, I think Gareth's answer last time was, was a fantastic answer. You know, I'm trying to think of the exact phrasing but it was along the lines of any situation you're in where you don't immediately know how to respond, would you know that would that would constitute a problem? And from there, remind me, you know, do tell me, Gareth, if I've misinterpreted your words, um, or if I'm misremembering. But uh, yeah, and so problem solving would be the approach to this to finding the solution to that problem. Um, I think in terms of distinction with reasoning, I don't think you can problem solve without reasoning. I don't think you can do mathematics without reasoning because you need to, you know, perhaps problem solving is the product and reasoning is the process that your brain goes through taking everything you know about mathematics. And I think we'll probably get to it later on to get to that, that solution that you want to get to. In kind of adding to that, I, I think as kind of Kieran's alluded to that throughout all of mathematics or most of mathematics, as you maybe say, there are the opportunities to reason. And in that process of sense making and applying logic and, and making connections and choices, and perhaps there are deeper opportunities for that within problem solving. I, I would make a, I think it's clearer to make the distinction between, and if we're considering reasoning as something that can be interwoven through um, perhaps most or all of mathematics, then, I think there's a clearer distinction to make between fluency and problem solving potentially in terms of the nature of the tasks. So whilst there, there may be reasoning that can be elicited from any task, I, I would see problem solving as something where a, a task where a child has the, the, the path to finding the solution to that task or approaching that task isn't linear in their, in their mind's eye. So, so they have to have the, the sense making, the navigation, finding the entry point, which might involve a question with more steps, but not necessarily. That's where I, I often think of the distinction in terms of the distinction between a task of fluency and a task of problem solving. I think it's particularly interesting that you draw that, that contrast there, because part of me when I think of fluency is I start thinking about something becoming 
um, automatic. So increasingly unconscious, you know, you've thought about it enough that it started to become something that you don't need to think about. And so that's how I kind of part of the idea of fluency in my mind. And so if you then contrast that intentionally with say problem solving, then what's the opposite of that? Well, the opposite of that is something that kind of requires a level of con intentional conscious decision-making rather than something that you hope to become or that, or that is, or has become unconscious. So I think that contrast between fluency and problem solving is, is well chosen. So I guess the real meaty question of today is this one, which is, well, what do you think the teaching of problem solving looks like? in an ideal classroom? And I recognize that that's a slightly leading question because there isn't really such a thing as an ideal classroom, but I'm gonna ask it that way anyway. Um, so I'll start with, well, you, Kieran, what do you think? What happened to go on alternately? <laughs> Just gonna keep throwing them up so they think Gareth looks look, look the wise one. This is, this is a ruse. <laughs> well, well, yeah, sorry, yeah, but apologies. <laughs> See, odds and evens, you know, that's obviously something <laughs> that I'm not fully fluent with yet. No, there we go, apologies. Sorry, uh, some, for some unknown reason, because Gareth was the last one to speak, I was like, oh, yes, now Kieran's turn. Sorry. I, I think a foundation is the teacher having the understanding of the, the precursors and the skills that are involved in breaking down that problem-solving task. And I think that they can take lots of different forms. So it might be just understanding what are all the different little pieces, all the different schemas that children need to to have to be able to succeed on that problem solving task. So like almost the domain specific pieces of knowledge that they're having to assimilate and having an understanding of actually what they are. And then if you like the problem solving heuristic, so the whether it's a question that is gonna involve working backwards or thinking systematically, or whether the focus is gonna be around the language and considering they will be skills that will be important for a child having success in that task. It might be, the child in their ability to regulate their emotions as they go through that problem solving task. And I think the foundation is thinking what defines success here? What, what are the skills that a child would need to see? And then from that foundation, how does that manifest? Well, the first thing for me would be teachers thinking almost like applying what we know about what is effective teaching into the context of, of, of problem solving. So thinking about how do we activate prior knowledge? Um, for me, something that's crucial if we want children to persevere later is activating prior knowledge and giving children high initial success, specifically in, in, in problem solving, firing up all those skills, drawing attention to the, um, to the ways, the characteristics that children might need to display later in the lesson. And then, so we have this coherent build-up to actually engaging in, in that task. And then what does it look like in an ideal um, context? I, I, I think that we want children to have a genuine experience of the problem solving and not to be able, not necessarily to kind of overly scaffold. But it's like, I always like to think of it as like a little dance between wanting to give children that genuine experience and then knowing just the moments that you're going to draw their attention to specific aspects of that task and making that explicit as well. And I think it, it, it's having that sensitivity and that adaptability to what that might look like in a lesson from the backdrop of, of high initial success and activating and being aware of the skills that the children will require to have success. Towards the end of that lesson, one of the things 
things that I think is really special then is the kind of emotional build-up and seeing the different emotions that children experience at that latter end as we as we have this struggle, the success, uh, the creativity, the perseverance. And then at the end, I think, and this is something that I've, I'm always conscious of not having pulled off as successfully, it's trying to finish with that clarity and perhaps the synthesis. How, how can children apply their understanding? They may have had success on a task, but how can they then assimilate that with their previous knowledge or experiences or learning and finishing with clarity? So for me, it would be looking at how do we give children high initial success, the engagement in the challenge, this kind of dance between um, between the genuine problem solving and drawing children's attention to specific things, and then finishing with this feeling of success and clarity, making those connections to, to other problem solving experiences. Nice. I mean, I'm totally with you, Gareth, on, on lots of that. I mean, when I describe my sort of scenario, I reckon it hits a lot of the key markers, you know, particularly the early success, because I think that's extremely important. Uh, one of the reasons I did my What You're Reading For is because it harks back to, well, it doesn't hark, it references a, a paper by Lester from 1985, and it's called the Cognitive Metacognitive Model. And, you know, this might sound familiar. Essentially, it talks about problem solving in terms of orientation, organization, execution, and verification, you know, which perhaps is where things like rucksack might have come from. But when I see a lot of the time, I think about, well, how is my approach different to something like rucksack? And I think it it, go, it speaks to what you're saying, Garth, about using that domain-specific knowledge and that being the root. You know, it's how can we take what we know and then use it in different situations. When I'm teaching, I want my pupils to be aware that it's the mathematical structure that they should be trying to connect what they know and what they don't know to. The question referred to what would problem solving look like in, you know, in a, in a kind of dream context. It would be the distinction between the type of task that we're actually referring to as well, in that I think that often when we talk about problem solving, what we're talking about is children being able to decode a question and we want to direct them into a linear path of thinking, if you like, because really it's just the interpretation of information to then lead into one specific process. And I would then discern there between the pedagogy that I would probably use in drawing children to see that structure with perhaps a more open-ended problem-solving task where there are very legitimately different ways into that and then so the the approach that that might be more beneficial will perhaps depend on the nature of the problem-solving that we're hoping for children to engage in the kind of the nature of the thinking. That's a really good point where pupils are relative experts you know experts solve problems different than novices and so yeah you're, you're definitely getting those really rich mathematical tasks with with a low floor and a high ceiling although you want all pupils to access those too i think some people benefit from that kind of like you said Garth, from that kind of approach more because they've got more to you know to build their approach to to the solution too If I, I mean what you've described there both of you is um, re really fascinating stuff but in quite um I'd say theoretical terms. And what I'm interested in alongside this is kind of some of the practical stuff. The downside to me asking about this practical stuff is I'm going to come off 
very silly. So please um, forgive the, the, the potential for silliness in these questions. So if I was thinking about my, my ideal problem solving lesson, a big part of it is that I'd want pupils to have a significant period of time where independently or in partners or however I want this to work, but without my direct input, they're grappling with problems and they're grappling with problems that, again, this is ideal, they, they can't do at first. And then with some conscious reflection and some nudging around and some thinking carefully about the mathematics that I've taught them, they then either, I wouldn't necessarily have a light bulb, they, they have a light bulb moment, but they, they, they reach somewhere and there is a sense of satisfaction about the fact that there was something they couldn't see the route to and then they could. And that part of that ideal problem solving process would be the need for conscious reflection but also the ability to have that moment of satisfaction because they've made that connection themselves. Now, that's obviously very difficult to achieve because your task has to be pitched incredibly well for that to happen. And even then, there's a few bits of luck involved, I think, in order to get that pitch just right for so many pupils. So thinking about that in practical terms, do you think that there is space or how or a better way of putting it how much space is there for you to give pupils a task and for them to look at it struggle with it and not quite get anywhere with it before you then say okay everyone let's have a talk about that is there room for that is that something that can be beneficial what do you think i mean i i would say there my leaning would generally be looking at almost working back from from that task that we want the children to engage with and struggle with and then think how do I provide related challenges to that that are enough steps removed that they still are able to have a legitimate experience of problem solving, but where children are almost primed to then have success on that task that they're going to approach. So I'd be working back in my mind from this is, this is the task that I want the children to engage in and struggle with. And then how do I then prepare them to have success on that while still having a legitimate problem solving experience. So in simple terms, that might be looking at if the question is going to involve, um, let, let's say there's one that I'm actually doing on Monday, which is which is looking at finding the uh, a midpoint, let's say, on a uh, of a rectangle and to find the coordinates. So, so I'd be thinking, well, the precursors to that might be, are children able to identify a number that is halfway between two different numbers on a, on a number line? And then rehearsing some of those skills and then providing maybe some open-ended tasks to explore. Let, let's say it was, there was a one coordinate on an axis and to be able to say, well, what coordinate could that be? What coordinate couldn't it be? To think of the relationship between X and Y so we can have some kind of an estimate. But it would then be with high success, toying around with some of the underpinning ideas that children will need to have success on that task before they then engage in that task. And then, like you say, then you, you have to respond with this, this little dance around of to what extent do I need to scaffold when I see a lack of success um, and where can I just let children go a little bit longer and of course we have to kind of essentially approximate around about where where to pitch that um, but then of course we've got that maneuverability in the way that we respond I guess to what we see it, it would be for me rather than giving children tasks and seeing the value in the struggle I think that I would think more about how do I really engage the thought processes that children want or, 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 or open up the thought processes that they need to have before they really engage in that task that's fascinating i guess i wonder then so um a kind of 
a part of what the question was kind of aiming at, and I think you've answered it there, is whether there's any value in, at the very beginning of the lesson, thinking about this problem or set of problems that you want to build towards, that you want to scaffold towards, scaffold towards, I should say, step by step, whether there's any value at the start of the lesson saying, look, this is a problem, have a go at it, just, just look at it for a couple of minutes, chat about it on your table. By the end of the lesson, we're all going to be tackling something that looks a bit like this. And even though you recognize that those two minutes might not be spent with them getting to the right answer, it perhaps has some value in priming them to think like, oh, goodness, how how do I do this? How, how am I going to get to this? I just wondered whether you think there's any value in that kind of um, early showing of these problems to prime something or whether that's a, a silly idea, because it's certainly something I've toyed with in the past. And I want to know how bad an idea it was. <laughs> well, how about if, if I come in, because I feel like I'm, I'm building on the previous response and, I, and then I'll stop talking and, and allow Kerry to come in at last. Um, I tell you, I think that that would depend for me on the nature of the children and their emotional response to that, because I think the benefit you have in introducing that task is you're showing the children that you at the moment don't have or, or you don't quite have the tools to be able to access that task. And so you're saying there is a need for you to develop these little bits and then you'll be able to get there. And that may be an effective fit strategy in one context. I think that if children are going into that lesson with, a, with perhaps a, more of an apprehension, with, with less confidence, then I think in that instance, that would have less value. Um, and then what I would in that instance emphasize is kind of higher initial success. So that, that would be my thoughts. I've actually utilized that quite a bit, particularly, I say around about 2017, 18. Um, it was quite popular for people who were in schools observing for one reason or another to say, oh, well, I didn't really see any reasoning in that lesson, as if reasoning was something that would be written down in, in books. Um, and so, one of the things I said to teachers was, well, if you start with some sort of problem and you explain that by the end of this lesson, you will be able to solve this problem. Well, then it makes it pretty blatantly obvious that you want pupils to think really about their about their mathematics. And so this was, you know, one of the things we would do quite often, you know, because we were the experts and we thought of oh, this is what we this is how we can engage all pupils. But I think Yard's right. I think. Were kids aren't emotionally ready and even if they're mathematically able in inverted commas or they're they attain well sometimes that can be just as daunting for them because they like getting everything right um and so was, i know i've certainly set enriched challenges and i don't know i may have mentioned this before i like to set a challenge that could last a week there's one i gave the year four which is all about cubes and the composition of cubes and so they had multi-link cubes and they were building different size cubes and Rich had a, a prompt that would push them towards some sort of generalization about the number that would be a certain color and stuff and that's not a problem you solve in in a lesson that's something you spend a week you're systematic you're recording you know everything everything you notice until you spot until a pattern sort of reveals itself to you but I remember you know where children weren't primed and didn't see the value and the maybe the environment wasn't such that the effort was a worthwhile thing in itself it was much more difficult to engage them with that and i think yeah you need to set set the tone in your in your environment and say actually the answer isn't really what matters in in mathematics it's the process that we go through and sometimes you know 
if I think about how I define reasoning in thinking deeply about primary mathematics, it's 99% perspiration. You know, children working through things until, like you said, Chris, the mathematics reveals itself, you know, but, you know, you don't get to the, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, you know, I've got mines and gold, but I don't want children digging in mines. So we'll just say you don't get to the beauty of mathematics without a lot of elbow grease, um, so to speak. Yeah, so I, I'm totally with you, Gareth. And I think, yeah, in my classroom, Chris, I have utilized that with whole classes, but I've also asked my higher attaining pupils, you know, who need some sort of, you know, need some, some something to think deeply about while you focus on the pupils who are maybe struggling with the mathematics and it's not a holding task it's something that's worthwhile in and of itself you know and as i was listening to gareth i don't think you get to that if you're worried about getting through a curriculum before the end of the year you know what gareth describes is a confident teacher who said i know that this will have much more value for my pupils and their understanding of mathematics, it's not a big deal if I don't get to the end of the fractions unit by the end of the spring term or whenever it, it might be. You know, so yeah, I'm totally with you, Gareth. Linked to what you guys have said, I mean, when I'm thinking about mathematical problem solving, I can't help but start thinking about um, the, 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 the way that people talk about problem solving or problem solving skills as, a, as like a generic thing and the potential dead ends that that leads us into and I guess what I want to ask is would it be like the way I think of problem solving in my mind is that there is there's a body of uh, of knowledge of interconnected knowledge around mathematics and its practical purposes and it's you know the theoretical side of it that we want pupils to develop in their time of learning mathematics problem solving as we say is the application of that in ways that pupils might be unfamiliar with and so something that might be a problem to one pupil might not be to another if they have seen this kind of problem a lot but this ties into like the purpose of problem solving and doing problem solving because if we are saying as some might that problem solving is the application of this body of knowledge and you just need to be an expert in that body of knowledge in order to be good at using it for these problems then yeah, what is the purpose of problem solving? Is it fundamentally the development of a set of attitudes and habits relating to problem solving, including, like you say, perseverance, emotional regulation, or is it, as it's as we say, like a, a separate, discrete, generalizable mathematical skill? I remember pre-2014 National Curriculum, you had national strategies documents that outlined a progression through things like reasoning and problem solving. And so then they sort of took into account elements of communication, behaviours like systematicity, you know, the first thing you see in year three. And while I don't think that's everything, I think it can be helpful to think about how we develop those behaviours so that we can support our pupils in, in approaching novel problems or non-routine problems whatever way you want to describe them you know because I think for me the end goal you know our kids aren't mathematicians I'm not even sure they're developing the behaviors that mathematicians will actually utilize but I do think there's a world 
of wonder that they can engage with that's appropriate for them. You know, when, whenever a child realizes the commutative law, for instance, you can see light bulbs going off. Whenever they see the 1089 problem and they understand a little bit about how that works, you know, I'm not saying in primary they're going to understand how 1089 works, but they can certainly see that there's a pattern evolving here, you know. Problem solving is easier when certain behaviors come naturally to you and whether and whether or not, you know, I'm thinking about parallels between comprehension and or, or reading and mathematics. And I think it's probably easier for me to say with more confidence that these skills, so to speak, the, these traits are distinct and are helpful. Whereas I know that's not always the case with reading. I just say, I think this is a fascinating question as well. Um, and all I could do is is give you, uh, is have a stab at my best thoughts, my and 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 answer. And, and I think Chris, coming to some of the things you you've mentioned there, I used to see problem solving as more of a general generic skill than I do now in in terms of children having success in answering a question. And I guess just what what I mean by that is I would think that children having success in answering one problem solving task would help them to answer another one. And now I don't think that links as strong as I used to consider it. Um, so, and, and thus why we might not consider problem solving Friday to be a good idea. Cause I maybe used to think doing problem solving Friday one week means I'll be better at solving other unrelated tasks the next. And I think that that speaks to some extent to, to, the, to the question. But I do think building on what Kieran said as well, and, and I think there are some value in the in the kind of generic strategies and particularly making the connections between different problem solving experiences. But I think that what we're really hitting on is that problem solving as a aspect of maths has a wider purpose than than other aspects of maths and than children as they develop, you know, as they become fluent in mathematics insofar as it builds children more powerfully their self-perception of themselves as a mathematician and of maths as a subject and in, and in engaging in problem solving I think that there is value in that sense like Kieran has said children experiencing the the joy in mathematics which problem solving opens up that possibility and there's something that I think as well that problem solving gives us the opportunity which and and it, it, it is to some extent more not quite entirely a unique opportunity but in being able to for children to be able to see and name and articulate the different emotional responses that that we have when we engage in mathematics and for children being able to see that and learn to self-regulate to recognize the frustration as being part of the learning process the sometimes the boredom the anxiety the creativity, the seeing the breadth of emotions, we, we may consider them as positive and negative emotions, but actually we could say that all of these different emotions, whether they're pleasant or uncomfortable, are actually all, all part of learning mathematics. And I think that problem solving gives us the opportunity to really explore that. And I think in doing so, that would be a one way in which I think it has this wider value in, as a branch of mathematics. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier on, Gareth, about the, I don't know, was this on record? Um, it was about the business people and they remembered the toil and the struggle more than they remembered anything else. 
And I think most, if not all teachers, appreciate the toil and the struggle of learning. Like you said, the frustration, you know, because normally the frustration comes just before things click and you're, you're banging your head against the wall. So I thought, yeah, that, uh, was, was that on record? Because that was a really good connection if, if it was, but I don't think it was, was it? <laughs> no, I, I, I could have a go explaining that. I read a book called How I Built This by um, someone who interviewed lots of different entrepreneurs and they, and they and they describe how building a business is a bit like jumping out of a helicopter and then and then building your parachute on the way down and the entrepreneurs describe the when they reflect back on their whole journey to to building you know um billion dollar businesses they reminisce about the early phase in their journey where they really struggle and they work really long hours and they're in you know they're having to live in the parents garage where they, they that's their first office and we reminisce about the struggle and, and I think to some extent in problem solving it's almost recognizing that that struggle or the varying emotions varying uncomfortable emotions are part of learning maths and us being able to reflect back from a position of success of seeing that we walk through those emotions again I think that has is a really valuable part of uh, each person's journey as a mathematician and I think it has a wider value as well. Um, for, it gives maths a wider value in, in a person's development. Yeah, I love that. I mean, because a big part of my thoughts around problem solving, such as they are, is that a big part of its value is attitudinal. It's about the development of certain attitudes. I can't help but, because it's one of the few hobbies that I still dedicate time to that isn't education-based, I can't help but think about the comparisons with cryptic crosswording. Bear with me on this one. Um, effectively, in order to be able to solve cryptic crosswords, you need a, a, a vast amount of knowledge about abbreviations, particularly of words, of you know diff how each letter of the alphabet can refer to lots of different things, about anagram indicators. So there's this massive body of knowledge that you need to build up over time. And yes, you can develop that body of knowledge just by looking at the answers. You can look at a, cross a, a blank crossword, look at the answers in the back of a crossword book, and slowly but surely build up this body of knowledge. But if you only do that, you you not only miss the point, but you lose the motivation to continue actually learning to do crosswords. You have to do them, even though it might not in that moment feel like the most efficient way to transmit knowledge or whatever it might be. You need to do them for a much the grander purpose of developing your own motivation for realizing how much you need to persevere with certain crosswords, developing certain, if not skills, then certain strategies like putting it down and coming back to it half an hour later and but most importantly as i say there's this attitudinal element to it you recognize the value of the process itself you you begin to recognize the satisfaction behind it more consciously than if you were to try and learn how to do crosswords without actually engaging with them and i guess to an extent mathematics is kind of similar in that yes you can learn this this body of knowledge and in some cases it might be quicker to transmit certain bits rather than just to give people the opportunity to to do the heart of mathematics to actually solve problems but without it you're not developing those attitudes you're not setting them up for those particular strategies and as i think you've so eloquently put you're not helping people to connect with their own underlying emotions and uh, that come about when they are dealing with this stuff that may translate beyond the um participation in mathematics so yeah that's that's what i took from it anyway from what you said 
And and just one little thing that I would I would add in there is if we consider what a child would require to have success in as a mathematician, and and our, our goal is feeding into a child having success as a math, as a mathematician when they're eighteen or they're twenty five, we might see my role now as being different than if my end goal is the end of block assessment or the test that's coming at the end of the year and that's easy for me to say in this position on a podcast and that almost goes beyond the teacher I think it's interesting seeing where where children are in an independent setting and there's perhaps more of a leaning towards actually well we want to see the long game for these children and there's no I think it's a slow burn building these characteristics over time there are probably other things in maths that are quicker fixes and and I, I think it just to recognising the value of those experiences, I think it is, is really important. Along those lines, on the, on the assumption that we're all in strong agreement about the power and the importance of problem solving in primary mathematics, I guess the question then becomes, like in practical terms, I've seen certain schemes that try and put like a little bit of problem solving um in every lesson so it's like we've learned this bit and then we're going to solve a problem with it and then we're gonna then the following day we'll learn this new thing or we'll build on the thing from the day before and we'll finish the lesson with problem solving as a kind of um tacked on component of every lesson in the same way that a plenary might have been to um in you know a, a, in a previous life what what are your thoughts on that kind of structure for problem solving i mean are there strengths to it are there weaknesses to it would you tell people it's a terrible idea or what would you reckon it's funny you say previously it would have been a plenary because for me problem solving should be at the heart of what we do just like reasoning should be you know like you know the the john mason quote if you're not reasoning you're not doing it's not mathematics you're doing but where we see the hour after break as the unit of measurement for the class or for the for the lesson or for the learning that's how you end up in that situation where you're shoehorning things in that shouldn't be there you know i spent a lot of time talking to people about how if i have designed an eight question sequence that i want to work through with pupils before they start practicing independently before they do some problem solving well, if I finish the lesson on question five, I'm going to start the next one on, on question six. So I think we need to see it as, you know, and I would have said this before um, I started working on complete maths, but it, it is a learning episode. It, it is that re-establishing what we mean by the unit of learning, I think. And when you see 60 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever it might be, as a unit in itself i think you miss the idea of how we should be approaching the sequences of lessons in our in our mathematics classroom because yeah i think yeah sometimes it's not appropriate sometimes it will be appropriate but sometimes you need to give them that new knowledge or you need to give them the chance to experience concrete resources say you're like this time of year you're maybe comparing uh, numbers to 1000 well you're probably going to be focusing on the magnitude of the of the numbers and how they compare with each other rather than anything arithmetic um 
I, th I would assume. So more time with base 10 equipment, less time applying that knowledge because that knowledge is far from formed. And so, yeah, so I, I think we need to think about how we see the sequence and we place it where we believe it's the right place for it, not because it's Tuesday, I haven't done any problem solving yet, so I need to do problem solving. I, I am likely to echo uh, th those things in this in this response. I think that if I went into a lesson and in that lesson, there was the, the lesson started with, you know, some fluency and then there was some reasoning. You know, we might or yeah, ideally, of course, we'd see the, the reasoning throughout and then we'd get to some problem solving. I wouldn't say oh, that was the wrong structure for that lesson. Looking over the course of time, though, there'd be a few things that I'd say. If, if we often want to see one structure that we can just apply, you know, for every lesson, this one blueprint for a lesson that we can just copy and paste. The issue, if that was the case, what we generally find is there would be some children that access all those aspects and there'd be other children in the class that don't get to that problem solving if I then copy and paste that structure. And that's a massive problem. And I would also consider if we if we look at the actual teacher modeling, then the likelihood is if we pick that structure, then to lower percentage of the actual teacher modeling is centering around the problem solving as well. So I think this considering a learning episode is really important. And, and of course, there's the, the underlying issue that if, if we come to approach problem solving tasks and it's in that domain, then to some extent the children will there's a clearer indication to the nature of that problem so they're not becoming as independent as problem solvers so there's i wouldn't say don't in your lesson have fluency reasoning and problem solving but that's okay but it is like kieran says looking at the balance over the course of time and for all children do all children experience and engage in problem solving how do they do that and can they do that within that structure and do I still, am I able in my direct instruction, is that frequently enough centred around actually breaking down problem solving as well? I guess a contrast to that and perhaps um, something that you would describe as being um, having the same sort of advantages and disadvantages um, would be something like having um, particular lessons in a sequence of learning where you think, you know what? We've learned a great deal about this, let's say fractions over the six or seven lessons. And what I'd like to do is connect fractions to other things that people uh, that the pupils have learned in the past and kind of deepen our understanding of fractions by digging into some interesting problems. Do you think there are any pros and cons to having that kind of structure whereby you say, okay, we've learned about this stuff. What I'd like to do is now have a lesson where we kind of really focus on digging into meaty problems on the assumption that there might have been apt opportunities for problem solving all the way through that have been taken but having a lesson that you just kind of set aside and go you know what we're gonna we're gonna focus particularly on problem solving here is that one way of looking at things um is that something that uh, you think leads to any problems problems is probably a poor choice of word there actually given what we're talking about leads to any um classroom pedagogical difficulties i mean i i, I would say there that what you've described i i would really like to see in a in a secret in a learning episode I, I think that like logistically what can be challenging there is just making sure that a teacher has that 
that is able to do that with that coherence with the um with the structure of the planning that they have as well because that it might require them to be able to consider well these are the problem solving tasks that we're coming to and and it's almost does will we have the right precursor knowledge and skills is that the right problem for that moment um and so that is the structure that i would like to see that, that I, I think there's great advantages there and it's just making sure that that there is the right task in the sequence of the learning episode that would be something that that would resonate with me i think also you're very rarely going to find it that when you teach something everybody picks it up and we're ready to move on to the next lesson so there's going to be more than enough time for those children who are ready to get onto the skin of problems like you described chris so it might not be a problem might not be the same activity for all pupils. Some pupils might be getting some more instruction, you know, filling gaps that have been identified during the during the sequence, during the episode. And um, so I think, yeah, from my experience, there's there's normally more than enough time for those opportunities. You know, just, just like Gareth says, I think it sounds sounds like something you should be promoting. Um, because then it sounds like you're getting a really rich experience of mathematics, I think. Well, that's something of a relief because um, I'd say fairly recently at least one of the things that I tried to do in my school when I was teaching mathematics was if I had sort of I, I know you shouldn't decide in advance I've got three weeks to teach x but when you're teaching in year six and you're building towards a certain set of tests sometimes you end up dividing up the time in that way unfortunately and one of the things I would do if I, if say for example I was teaching a particular topic and I thought well I know I've got roughly three weeks for this one of the things I do is I leave a kind of a chunk of time at the end of those three weeks and say, you know what, that's kind of like flexible time. And I know some of it is going to be taken up by my extra lessons required because of assessment for learning, et cetera, et cetera. But I also know that one thing we're going to build towards there is some problem solving related to this topic that also connects this topic to other stuff. So I don't feel quite so, um, silly for having structured my planning my medium term planning in that way and i'm not going to let you say any more on that subject in case you then contradict me and say that that was a bad idea i'm happy to feel a bit better about uh, the, i've got i've got one thing to add though chris no go I, for it it's um it's also like if if you leave that time and you choose the problem carefully you know you could have a problem that encourages children to practice things you may have taught her previously you know maybe several months behind i'm thinking of you know the one where you get a pentagon and maybe you get some lines going on and you're asked to work out certain properties, maybe perhaps the internal angles. I'm trying to think what the what the question is in primary. Um, well, you, you need lots of addition, subtraction, some ge geometric knowledge, and you're bringing those all together to solve a particularly tricky problem for primary age pupils. So with a little bit of thought, you know, it, it goes back to my thing, but you could do assessment in key stage one with five carefully chosen problems i reckon you could you could hit all the markers if you chose your problems really really carefully i think five would be the perfect number and um, so yeah so i think i think i think that's it's double bang for your for your buck and yeah we want to get paid in dollars now don't we because <laughs> not great <laughs> So we've talked about the value of problem solving, some practical elements around it, some ways that you might structure lessons, some of the advantages about different ways of structuring lessons and what you need to keep in mind if you are doing that. I think teachers tend to have a, a, a decent grasp from my experience of problem solving, what it is, but 
I tend to see a few misconceptions about the place. Are there any particular misconceptions about problem solving or perhaps even about reasoning as well that you've come across in your time working with as many teachers as you have? I mean, if we consider misconceptions to be overgeneralizations in the main, there are two that are almost diametrically opposed to each other. You've got the misconception that all problem solving is word problem solving and leading to quite a mundane existence for pupils who have to encounter that on a daily basis. But you've also got the misconception that no instruction is needed for pupils to be successful in problem solving. So you've almost got carte blanche. Here is some loose framework in which I want you to solve this problem. Off you go. Um, and while I think there are situations where that can work, for the vast majority of children, I don't think it, I think it's an overgeneralization. So I think, you know, my interpretation of the chat we've had tonight, me and Gareth have been given this message where it's, it's very much about finding a, a balance between lots of individual factors that connect to make this, this phenomenon. And so the two misconceptions I see are overgeneralizations to the poles, if that makes sense. And again, I Kieran has taken my answer to some extent. Let me first of all answer a slightly different question to the one that was asked, which was, I think that teachers have an appetite for problem solving of the teachers that I've worked with and to be able to engage children in problem solving. But I think some of the reasons that they don't do that to the extent that they'd like to are the demands on coverage and the nature of the resources that they are working from and, and possibly you know, an apprehension of the kind of experience they might have in the classroom. It's not as comfortable, perhaps, as other things, but I think they have an appetite to engage children in problem solving more than they do, potentially. And um, what, what, if I just add in one other thing, that I guess it, it would perhaps be um, a, a misconception could be that what the, the, the sequences, we do the concrete, we do the pictorial, then we do the abstract, and then we do the problem solving. And actually, for me, it would be, how do we uncover the structure of the problem again comes back to those the, the resources and the images that show that deep structure so considering that as a, a really important aspect of problem solving rather than problem solving as being the thing that we then do in the abstract at the end of that sequence so, so i would i would just add that in, into the points that kieran made yeah i mean that that makes loads of sense i'd say i mean the couple of the misconceptions i have come across is um the idea that problem solving is the domain of more capable children or those who are higher attaining at that given moment so more capable in the moment or that it's something for older children you know it's like oh yeah we we focus more on that in in year five and six rather than like a fundamental component of mathematical development all the way through so those are the those are the ones that kind of have struck me over the years that i've seen every now and then that i, I think are worth pushing back on it's been a fascinating chat, but what I'd really like to talk about alongside this, and I think something that's always valuable is like some key takeaways. So if you could give teachers just two, maybe three bits of key advice on problem solving, perhaps how to make it better in the classroom, um, how to think about how to plan it, whatever it might be, what, what advice would you choose to give if you were limited in that way? I think my two are linked, but they are different. First bit of advice I would give to any teacher is to try and solve the problem yourself before you set it for a pupil. And 
even if that is what constitutes your planning, I think it goes a long way in terms of the both the empathy and the, the understanding of the potential thought process necessary to get to the solution. You know, I've seen a lot of lessons go awry where the person who set the problem hadn't carefully thought it through and then children were coming with ideas that were being rejected because not everything had been considered in advance, if that makes sense. You know, because like Yara says, there are mo some problems multiple ways in, multiple options depending on a number of factors. So the the more we are aware of those different possibilities, I think the better. The one and one way we can do that is we can we can do the try and solve the problems ourselves. And this connects to the second one. And I think it's as teachers, we should engage with recreational mathematics, even if that just means doing Sudoku in the paper or reading one of Alex Beos's books and trying to solve the problems in there. You know, there, there are probably many, many sites. I, I bet if you type in recreational mathematics, you know, don't do it in your school computer just in case, but if you type in recreational mathematics, you will get um, problems that adults can engage with. And again, I think it, it, it speaks to the empathy that you can show because you'll have been through the struggle. And, and I think that connects to all this stuff. So th those are the two things I would say, and it involves teachers doing more maths. I'm going to jump in and give a couple of suggestions, if I may, very briefly. And they're both kind of resources. One of them is I'd recommend checking out um, Thinking Mathematically by John Mason. I think that's a, a fascinating book and linked to this idea of recreational mathematics as well. Um, and I can't help but say it, but I think you'd be a fool if you weren't interested in Gareth's resources on the subject. As I've said many times, engaging with his work has been some of the best professional development um, I've ever done. So highly recommended um and on that note i'm gonna hand over to gareth what, you, what, what, what would be your um, bits of advice well, i feel under pressure now uh, kind of coming back to some of the things we've talked about already really i would, I would and and to kieran's comment and engaging in the maths yourself thinking about what are the different precursor skills that children need to have what are the the skills that are required for them to break down and have success in, the, in that task in my flavor is how do i in, begin by engaging children, giving them high success, considering like activating the prior learning that will then mean that they will deeply engage in that task and, and be, be primed for success um, without delegitimizing the problem itself. The second piece of advice I would have would be trying to end with clarity and children having their, their, their strongest sense that, uh, of the perception of the success they've had in that lesson is likely to come in their in their final experience. So I would try and finish with clarity, uh, with a perception of success, and where possible, trying to, or, or even if it's afterwards, having a kind of synthesis of being able to compare this task with this other related task, and then seeing similar examples to help children to make connections between those examples. The thing that I wanted to just finishing, finish by mentioning though, uh, which again we, we referred to earlier was considering problem solving and the varying emotions that children are like to experience and engaging in those problem solving tasks and helping children to be aware of them and seeing them all as part of the problem solving process and so not thinking 
if they have an uncomfortable emotion of one kind or another, that that's not what a mathematician is supposed to experience. And for me, naming some of the emotions before we engage in the mathematics, so I don't like to do it in a lesson, but beforehand, naming some of the emotions that children are likely to experience and maybe afterwards reflecting on them. So it might be that I'll say in this lesson, there'll be a point at which you may feel like, or it would be natural if you felt like this or, and priming children for that, the fact that they, this success may require some struggle. It might require some confusion, some frustration. If you feel some anxiety, that is a temporary emotion that limits your ability to think as clearly as you could. I think actually technically it's, it's a, um, it would lessen the blood flow into the frontal lobes of your brain. But actually, I, I may not go into that level of detail, but just understanding that mathematicians walk through a range of different emotions and they all feel that, that that's all part of what it is to engage in mathematics. And that and that is great. And then so children see the value in the in the struggle. And then also, of course, recognizing the success. So helping children to to appreciate the emotional experience of engaging in maths before engaging and after that that would be my uh, my one parting piece of advice thank you so much for that uh, gareth yeah that's um yeah food for thought for anyone listening and i guess sadly i'll now give up the reins of temporary host and hand back to kieran yeah i mean thank goodness you both were here tonight because i have not been on form so this will definitely not be the last time we talk about uh, about problem solving because I think I need to, yeah, make amends for being slightly off the pace. But uh, yeah, it, it's fascinating as always. I think if we put this with the previous episode, we're building up our repertoire of um, of things for people to think about when it comes to problem solving. So I really appreciate um your time and your and your thoughts. Yeah. So all I have to do is say thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gareth. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me again. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.